It is just a few minutes after 6 o'clock and you are tuned into WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker and this program is called Too Much Information. Which was a funny name, you know, a few years ago. But uh, now I, like you, am just underwater. Underneath all the zeros and ones. Trying to breathe. But we have uh, a couple good things this hour. Uh, I'm going to play an interview I recorded the other day with the Chinese film director, Zhe Zhangke. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've tried practicing saying that. Uh, and then uh, we have startup dude Alexis Ohanian uh, talking about his new project without their permission and he's one of our uh, guests at Radio Vision which I'm going to tell you a bit more about uh, after those two interviews but uh, let's just uh, try to pull this off so the one and only Chinese film director Jia Zhongke was in town uh, this week to promote his new movie which is called A Touch of Sin. But uh, over the past 10 years, he has gained an incredible international following. Uh, I mean, just in a few years here in New York, MoMA retrospectives. He's been uh, special guests all over the world, Venice, Cannes, Toronto. Some of his movies like The World, Unknown Pleasures, Platform. Uh, If you're looking for a very different lens on the spectacular roaring beast that is contemporary China. Definitely recommend you check out his movies. But the new one, A Touch of Sin, is extremely a, a new step for him. It, it's it's very violent. It, I mean, that's the theme. It takes on uh, violence that's starting to become more and more commonplace in contemporary China. And there are four sort of episodes in the film, and three end with murder. And one with suicide. And the first story, a village man decides to load up his shotgun. And uh, there's this amazing scene where he drapes this like uh, tiger towel over his shotgun and goes hunting. But he decides to take matters into his own hand and deal with the corrupt uh, mine owner and village uh, chief. And then in the second story, we have a woman who's working at a sauna who ends up getting assaulted by another corrupt official. And she ends up killing him. And then we have uh, this uh, alienated Chinese John Dillinger type who uh, wanders around China robbing and killing because, as he says, it's the only interesting work that he can find. And then in the fourth story, we are introduced to a young migrant factory worker who kills himself. And all of these stories are based, that last one, on the Foxconn suicides, but they're all based on very famous cases in China. So it's a bit of a ripped-from-the-headlines type movie. But the movie just opened here in New York, and Jia uh, Zhongke announced on the stage of the New York Film Festival that the movie's actually going to get a Chinese release, which is something a lot of people thought was preposterous. But uh, I got to talk to him for a bit, and I had some help from his uh, translator, Elisa Ma. So let's try this out. 
Um, a touch of sin began filming last year after I noticed that events of violence had been mounting over the past two years in China. Um, usually, these events broke out uh, through um, social media reports, but what was missing was an aesthetic discussion or discourse around uh, the state of these events. So these stories about three killers and uh, one uh, suicide are, to me, an expression of the emotional pains endured by society. And I wanted to explore what were these factors that accumulated to produce these very violent events. What's so striking about this film is not just that all the protagonists are perpetrators of violence, but that they are pushed to become perpetrators. Not just by traditional bad guys like corrupt officials and factory bosses, but more so by the very nature of contemporary China. Um, they form an entrance point uh, to a more uh, candid uh, view of uh, Chinese contemporary society, and they invite a deeper com- contemplation of our surroundings. When perhaps all of us who are not violent by nature are confronted with um, such extreme events of violence that we're all, we all have the possibility of trans- making this transformation into a perpetrator of violence. The fourth story is probably the most brutal and based on something most of us are familiar with, the suicides at the Foxconn factories. The boy in this story is working at a factory when we first meet him. He's lonely, and his mother only rings his cell phone to find out when he's sending money home. And he runs from this job when he accidentally distracts a friend who injures himself. He's told that his wages will go to the injured boy. Then he takes a job at a fancy hotel and even meets a young girl, but she's a sex worker and he sees no future with her or with this way of life. And so he runs again. He gets a, another factory job, but the boy who was injured earlier also works here. And our protagonist is threatened with a beatdown. So he throws himself off the roof, killing himself. I asked Jia Zhangke to talk a little bit about the forces he sees responsible for this act of violence. Um, because of the, the wide-spanning regions of, of China's geography, um, it's uh, the case that the, most of the north is, uh, is more, um, is poorer than the south. Um, so many young people migrate from the north to the south to seek work at factories such as Fushikang. So for them, um, even though they cannot go back to their home, the city doesn't belong to them, and vice versa, they do not belong to the city. So for them, there's um, a whole world of desires that they cannot reach. Perhaps these young people uh, physically enter into the city, but without the proper papers and without the um, conditions that it takes, um, they are not actually connected to the city. Um, the, posi- the, the hopes that one bears uh, in my Migrating um, and is then met with um, the alienation that comes with working at such in such a factory, working life, and perhaps uh, 
also bearing hopes, um, think the thought of him bearing the hopes for a better life uh, uh, when he migrated for work to Guangzhou, and then the disappointment thereafter of not uh, being able to fulfill those hopes. Now, China isn't exactly known for its films that question things like wealth disparity, inequality, alienation, the murder of corrupt officials. And I asked him how he thought this movie would have a chance of an official release. Apparently, I was not the first person to ask him this. Um, this is perhaps the question that I've answered the most since the film has come out. And um, indeed, in the beginning, the collaborators had the same worries. Um, but because these stories have been reported upon so widely through media, um, I wondered what, why... Uh, the why films would not have a chance to um, to also describe these events in in an aesthetic way um, to use art to contemplate these events uh, since they were already reported upon in the media. Um, the second reason is that. Um, because the events have been reported also through Weibo and social media, they can no longer be obscured or covered up or uh, altered in a way. Um, so they signal um, a chance for the Chinese collective social uh, people to uh, reflect upon these events in a deeper way. A Touch of Sin is out in the movie theaters now. So WFMU's uh, third, third annual Radio Vision Festival is coming up. And uh, that is Saturday, October 19th. You can go to the WFMU site and find a link to it. It's radiovision.wfmu.org. But uh, if you're around, uh, I really hope you'll consider coming down and joining us for a whole day at the Scholastic Theater in Soho. Lori Anderson is uh, our will be wrapping up the day, our keynote speaker, which uh, uh, she's going to be talking about her career, but also you know tying it up for us on our theme of the day, which is sort of the convergence media and art. But art driving the media and uh, keeping the artistic vision intact. But we have a very full day. We have Tom Sharpling doing a whole session on comedy podcasts with Julie Klausner and Jake Fogelnest. We have uh, the writer Rob Walker, no relation. I always tell people we are, but we're, we're not related. He told me to stop saying that. But uh, uh, he's running a whole uh, discussion on native advertising, which is going to be such an amazing time. And we have Bob Garfield from On The Media hanging out on that discussion. But we also have uh, radio host John Ronson, Jonathan Goldstein, Starley Kine. Liz Berg is running a session with Planet Money. WNYC's coming down. And then in the morning we have SoundCloud. 
study arts. It's it's a whole it's a whole day of programming. And uh, our other special guest is Alexis Ohanian, who is uh, always describes himself as a startup dude, as you're about to hear in this next interview. He has a book out that just came out last week called Without Their Permission. One of the reasons we invited him down for Radio Vision is just as the podcasters and radio, internet radio shows that are starting to find and make their own way, not just with technology, but with audiences and self-sustaining strategies. That's kind of the power of the internet itself, and that's definitely the topic of his new book. But uh, Alexis is known, he's one of the co-founders of Reddit, also the travel site Hipmunk. But uh, he was one of the faces for the SOPA-PIPA fight, uh, keeping the internet safe from all of the corporate monsters that wanted to put it back in the box a few years ago. He ran on the president of the internet tour for a while on that. But uh, he's great. We really, we also love webcomics. He's been publishing a a few, in fact. But uh, the book is a great read about almost redefining for me, actually, what entrepreneurship even means. He says that was one of the things he set out to do with this book, in fact. So I recorded an interview with him the other day, and let's check it out. One of the big aims of the book is to really knock the word entrepreneur off of its pedestal and, 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 and really make entrepreneurship feel like what it actually is, which is just being entrepreneurial, having an idea, doing it. And, and that requires creativity, right? It requires you to look at the world, see something that's missing, and produce something of value uh, to, that, that people enjoy and want. And they're, they're very, very intertwined. And similar to how people think about creativity, people think about entrepreneurship and being entrepreneurial as being something that some people have and can do and others can't. It's very binary, right? You always hear people describing, right? You, people are described as, quote, creatives and, you know, quote, entrepreneurs. And it, and it just reinforces this false notion that there are just some people who are creative. No, everyone is creative. Uh, everyone can be creative. Everyone can be entrepreneurial. And it doesn't just have to be entrepreneurial in the sense of starting a company. Uh, it can just be entrepreneurial in the sense of being resourceful in the same way that being creative doesn't mean becoming, doesn't necessarily mean becoming the next Banksy. It just means creating, doing something original, doing something new. And, and that was something I wanted to make sure I got across in the book because obviously people know me for Reddit and Hitmonk and, and a lot of startups in the very classical business entrepreneur sense. But I got to meet and I've gotten to know people all across disciplines, including, you know, web comics who are being entrepreneurial, who, who are doing the same kind of, you know, awesomeness, uh, thanks to the internet at a scale that we just have never seen before. And, and that's what I want to see more of. And they're doing things now that they couldn't have done even five years ago and certainly not 10 years ago. And so it gets me really excited, frankly, to think about all the, better stuff, all the other stuff that's coming as more and more people get to be creative and get to be entrepreneurial. Sure, sure. But let's let's talk maybe about one of these webcomics uh, artists that you've dealt with recently. I'm, I'm curious, and you also do a lot of counseling for startups, you know, other entrepreneurs. Let's just like 
think of one of these comics that you've published recently and, 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 and tell us about where you see some crossover between, you know, that particular artist and some of, say, the, the founders or future uh, entrepreneurs that you're also counseling. Like what, what, you know, if you had to like sort of put those two on the couch in front of you, what are some <laughs> of the things that, that connect? Well, um, let me use Zach Wiener as an example. Uh, and, and, well, Zach Wiener Smith, technically, he, he married a wonderful woman whose last name was Smith. His last name was Wiener. They married and put the two together to create the most amazing surname ever, Wiener, Wiener Smith, right? So, so Zach's, Zach's been around for a little while. He actually started as a closed captionist. And uh, this poor guy had to take all of his genius and spend it well, I don't know, probably captioning like Jersey Shore. And uh, needless to say, a waste of talent. But he started a side hustle. He started a site, smbc-comics.com, in his spare time. And it's the same kind of story. You know, I, I, have, I know founders who have their full-time job and start a little something on the side, launch an app, get a website up, do stuff on the nights and weekends. And then eventually, just was the case with Zach, they start getting enough traffic and actually start making enough money that they can start putting even more time behind this. And remember, it costs nothing but time, essentially, to start either of these things, whether you want to start the next Reddit or you want to start the next SNBC Comics. And over the last, geez, I think six or seven years now, he's built SNBC, Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial, into one of the top ten most popular web comics, uh, in, in, at least in English, um, if not, if not the world or the universe. Um, so he's done incredibly well. He's read by millions of people now. And it is his full-time job. And what's so cool about this is like, it's the same principles, right? It's, it's, it's produce, 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 just like ship, ship, ship. Don't just have ideas, actually execute them. Get those first comics online, even if they suck. It's okay to be embarrassed by them uh, because they all start out that way. And no one starts out you know, as the finished product, whether you're a founder of a startup or whether you're, you know, starting a webcomic. And to see or to read about him talking about this is is so motivating because you realize really quickly, like, just like plenty of founders, you know, Zach didn't really know what he was doing. He just always thought he wanted to make comics. And he, he could take a small risk of starting something that maybe no one would have read except for him and, like, I don't know, a few family members. Uh, and, and got over that, got over that fear and just started producing. And eventually it started snowballing. And then, like any good business person, you know, he tried to keep his costs low. I mean, he doesn't. This guy, <laughs> uh, his, his biggest expense is probably books still to this day. He, he's, uh, he, he lives a pretty frugal life, and uh, I don't know if he was ramen. It wasn't quite ramen all the time, so it wasn't quite ramen profitability he was striving for, but it's the same kind of thing, finding ways to stay lean. You know, and he, he now has a team of, I think, four who help him. So he's employing people. It's, it's like... It's great because he is now building uh, this this small little empire around this one comic that was something he did to get over his drudgery of his daytime job. And he gets to write about things and discuss things and make science jokes and do all this stuff without having to seek permission from an editor or worrying about offending people because he's talking about something a little bit controversial or contentious. And and it's great. Especially, you know, it's such web comics are such an interesting like lens to look through because that industry was so so prohibitive for so long, right? The only way we got Gary Larson and and Watterson, of course, Calvin and Hobbes, 
was because some editor somewhere in the Sunday comic section of newspapers said, yeah, okay, we'll syndicate you. Without that, we don't ever benefit from any of, you know, we never would have learned about Calvin Ball. And we, we lucked out because we got a few of those talents, but how many did we miss out on? You know, Family Circus is some very good evidence of, <laughs> like, the the ridiculousness, the sort of absurdity of these tastemakers who who actually still reads Family Circus. Hey, it you want to you want to get the Bill Keen people to start firebombing my radio station? <laughs> I look, I look. We know we know if they did anything to your radio station, we'd be able to follow the tracks, <laughs> so we'd be able to catch them. <laughs> but that's, that's what we have going for us. So I like that you said that you wanted to take the the ideas behind entrepreneurship and off the pedestal. There's another one that you that you talk about, which is the, the pivot. And, you know, this is always a term I've hated. And I think it mostly has to do with because, you know, when you use the comics example, the, there's something about, like, having a creative idea and not being able to succeed at it, which is, in my mind, has always equaled failure. So I've always sort of been, like, resistant, and I didn't like this you know, buzz speak around the idea of pivot, but I think you've convinced me to rethink my my hatred. So I'm, I'm I'd love if you could talk a little bit about what it means for you and how it sort of played a role in your Reddit story in the story of Reddit. Sure, you know the there is I feel like every six months, and this is the case I'm sure in every industry, but every six months there's a new buzzword or a new bit of jargon, and and I I don't know if this one's sticking around per se, but I like. I mean, yes, something like I say in the book, like a pivot, right? And then, like you said, is really just failing and then adapting. You know? Yeah, I know it is. And 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 so I want to. I obviously have to want to get that out of the way. That's that's that is what that is. Um, and I, the only reason why I I tolerate it as this kind of euphemism is that I. I mean, we should actually. I mean, you should absolutely call it what it is. Like you know, company, person, whatever. Try something. It does not work you know, adapt the business to something that might work. Um, that doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as just pivot. Um, it is, I mean, it's a, I, whatever the, the point is we experienced our first, uh, pivot, um, after, you know, Steve and I have been working on a company for a year at UVA, um, that was going to make this mobile phone food ordering app. So you wouldn't have to wait in line at Starbucks. You could just order it a few blocks away and then pick it up when you get there. And it was called my, my, we were very proud of that. My mobile menu, uh, it was going to be called, mm, and <laughs> we thought this was going to take over the world. And I, I, I incorporated a company with Steve. It was called red brick solutions, LLC. And we had business cards and did all the right things. And a year into it, we got a meeting with my combinator and this was their first round of startups, you know, for this now world famous accelerator. But back then they were just getting started. Uh, and they called us up for interviews and we thought we'd be a great interview and then they rejected us. Uh, they called us back and said, Nope, sorry, this isn't going to work. And so we got drunk. And then the next morning PG calls me back and we're on the long train back to Charlottesville, Virginia. And he calls back and he says, you know what? <sighs> we like you guys. We just don't like the idea. And if you change the idea, he didn't say pivot. If you change the idea, we will let you into Y Combinator. And after, you know, a whole year of working and dedicating ourselves to, mm, we decided in about five seconds that we were going to quit and do this new thing, whatever it was going to be. We hadn't even figured out yet, but we wanted to be a part of YC and uh, that changed our lives. You know, we wouldn't, I can't even imagine what we would have done if we had said no and stayed on that train and kept working on it because it was way too soon. You know, the argument 
that they had, and it was a sound one, was uh, you know there are no smartphones on the market. The only way you were going to get that app on people's phones would be making deals with the phone carriers. So it would be one of those preloaded kind of spammy apps that used to always put on our phones. Like it, uh, it was bad news. Bad. Let's talk about this. We you, you just introduced us to Steve, your your co-founder yeah. and friend. Awesome. Now I know that today uh, you get you get asked to hear a you know counsel a lot of of new startups, and and I'm I'd, I'd love for you to talk about your. Co-founder. You talk about in in your story that sometimes you look at these, you know, co-founder, and you can tell sometimes right away that they don't have the kind of relationship that might lead to success. So I want to talk about you and Steve. Like, what was it that made it possible for you guys to go from just meeting in in a dorm uh, to like going through those experiences? Like, okay, we'll let you in if you have a new idea to to making it work to, uh, to the end zone. Steve and I absolutely complement each other. And and that was not only were we very good friends, uh, but we complemented each other really well. I mean, Steve did everything technical at Reddit. I did everything non-technical, and and that helped because it was a very clear division of labor. And it just, I think that combined with us having a mutual respect for each other. I mean, I don't know if Steve respected me, but I I respected him, and I can assume as much. Well, I shouldn't, but anyway, probably. And, uh, and that's it. I mean, there's, there's always fights, there's always disputes, you know, when you have people who care a lot about what they're doing, there are going to be times when they're going to fight. And, and as long as that stuff is constructive and as long as that is, is, you know, not destructive, it doesn't fester and you actually are willing to just set aside your ego at some point and just say, you know what, this is for the best of the company. And, 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 you know, what for, you know, we, we lucked out too, because, the roles were so different at the end of the day, Steve and I could fight for a day about whether or not we would launch subreddits or tags. This was a very fateful decision. I, I talk about it more in detail, but the, the TLDR is Steve really wanted subreddits to be the way Reddit grew. People would be able to create their own subreddits, which is of course what we ended up doing. I really wanted tagging because it would grow a lot faster. Someone could just submit a link and tag it a bunch of things. And we have verticals a lot sooner. And thankfully, he won. And uh, the the reason he won was because you know at the end of the day, if it's a technical decision, if it's going to involve, if it's going to involve writing code, I'm going to just trust Steve. I'm going to make the best, most passionate case I can. I'm going to tell him he is wrong, and all those things. But you know what? I have to, I have to at some point get over my own ego and say, you know what? We drew a line, and at this point, I'm just going to have to support it. And, you know, we ended up being very right uh, <laughs> as a result. And, and likewise, you know, when, when, when there would be some kind of non-technical discussion or debate or some kind of thing going on, at some point, Steve would have to concede, like, all right, fine, just go go do an Alexis and uh, you win. So it's, it, 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 and it's, it's not easy. It really is not easy. Again, I have, I, I have insight into making long-term relationships work. I don't know what marriage is like, but I assume... You know, having a co-founder is pretty damn close. Uh, so, you can start with your friends and your coworkers, and that's usually where a lot of a lot of sort of founder couples are are made. But you really need to know that you can work together and that you can actually really count on this person and believe in this person. And and then don't forget always vest, just in case you should always vest your stock. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to talk about when you start, so you, you pivot and you're working on Reddit mm-hmm. now and there was a lot of competition out there. You two were not the only two guys out oh, there yeah. wanting to become the front page of the internet. But let's talk about Dig specifically. I love this, if you could tell us a little bit about 
you don't you don't have to tell the whole story. People can get the book. Um, mm -hmm. But talk a little bit about how you first came to learn about Dig and what some very interesting advice you got <laughs> about competition and why you won. Oh yes, yeah. So uh, and I found the email. I, I swear, for years I have been telling people. Really, we did not know about Dig. We did not copy Dig. And so I just found the email, in which I first learned about Dig just a couple of weeks after we had launched. And the subject line was very simple. I think it was meet the enemy. And the body of the email just said, you know, dig.com. And it was to Steve and then Paul, who was our, our primary investor at YC. And wow. He, and remember, just graduated from college, right? Just out of UVA. This was basically the first web application we had ever made. Like I'd been building websites and Steve did a web app for his senior thesis. But like this was the first real thing that we made for random people in the world to use. And uh, here we go, learning about this tech celebrity who had six months earlier announced, launched his website on his TV show, raised money, had traction and all that valley excitement. And uh, and there we were in Medford, Massachusetts, not knowing what to do. And Paul gave some great advice that I fall back on regularly, which is do not care about your competition. Don't care. Don't care one bit um, because they're not going to be the ones who beat you. You're going to beat yourself or some other upstart is going to come up and get you. But don't worry about anyone who's already out there. And, and just... The, the more time you spend paying attention to your competition, uh, the less you are actually innovating. And it was so helpful. If you look, Dig and all of its Dig clones, Netscape went through a redesign. Uh, there was Newsvine. There were, at one point, there was probably a dozen of them. And they're all gone. And the reason is every single one of them simply copied Dig. And we benefited from not knowing about them. You know, it was it was kind of ironic because like I, sh I should have been doing my due diligence and like doing a competitive analysis or whatever they were teaching me in business school, but I I did not. And it was a benefit because we weren't we were thinking about how to build something without that clouding our judgment. And so the front page was always fundamentally different because. You know, every subreddit is just a constantly rising and falling list. Um, and so it's harder to game because, you know, all the big part of Dig Downfall was how just sort of corrupted the system was and how, you know, it was it was so easily taken advantage of by marketers and, and just whatever people. And, um, and so we had a system that was more robust, that was actually going to be doing a better job of showing what was new and interesting and, and also for comments as well. And And then we knew that the way we would grow thanks to the fight Steve and I had was through user created subreddits. And so we knew we had to become a platform and dig always was uh, hum, you know, sort of a monoculture. It was just one front page with a bunch of different sections. And the fact that we turned into a platform as early as we did has been by and large, the biggest reason why Reddit succeeded and why dig and all the rest are gone because we knew, you know, looking at, at folks like WordPress before us, um, we could create a platform where anyone could create a subreddit for whatever forum community they wanted and use that to find the most interesting stuff. And, you know, it was, it was that decision a lot that I think it made all the difference. And, and, you know, ignorance actually did pay off in that regard. <laughs> so please, please, please do not be scared of competition. Do not care about competition because they are not your biggest concern. 
Yeah. I'm I'm curious how this relates to the mm-hmm. idea of disruption. There's a, one of my favorite stories is just goes back to your childhood where you're you're talking about your father coming home mm-hmm. from work and he worked in the uh travel industry and he mm-hmm. uh had, you know, realized that his industry had been disrupted and he was very frustrated about it. But it seems like this was your kind of earliest encounter with the idea of disruption. And I want you to quickly talk about that and what you felt you mm-hmm. learned then. That sort of because I, I feel like some of that was there when you just even listening to you talk about the the story and thinking about dig, but how you still think about disruption today? Sure, yeah, that you know for me that was so formative. I I was sitting at you know at the dinner table throughout high school hearing about my dad who had just started a travel agency. He had been a travel agent for a couple decades at that point. Started his own agency, so here he is, in-house entrepreneur right when a little thing called the internet uh, was changing the entire industry because all these websites were coming up that let people book their own flights and hotels. And commissions, which used to be the primary way he made money from airlines and hotels, were evaporating. And so every night I'd hear my dad railing against another one of these dot-coms that was, you know, changing everything. And what was so motivational for me there was one, you know, I was already making websites, you know, for video game groups that I was in. Uh, I was already busy using the internet to learn and to create, but it was there that I saw, wow, this thing is going to be a big deal. And, and I want to be on the side of the people doing all that disruption. And, and though to my dad's credit, and this is something that I certainly during the fight against Sopa Pippa and, and really any time I hear the entertainment industry trying to go to Washington to get laws written, uh, I, I think back to this because, you know, the internet and, and by evidence, I mean, I did help start a travel search engine myself, uh, in Hipmunk, but the internet dramatically changed the travel industry and put a lot of agents out of business. And, and that's, that sucks. It does. The result, though, is a more efficient system and a better experience for all of us booking flights and hotels. It's, it is, unfortunately, a byproduct of progress. And to my dad's credit, he didn't go down to K Street. He didn't call up his lawyer. He didn't call up his lobbyist. Um, he adapted his business, and he's still in business to this day. He has a very particular niche of business travelers and then sort of retired boomers who are taking their first cruise. But he fulfills a demand, and he's got a few employees, and he's doing his thing out in Western Maryland. And it's it's so impressive to me because that's that's a case study that I want to read. That's a business case study of how how business leaders should behave. And, and when I see how the entertainment industry tends to behave, I see a lot of business leaders who for, I mean, a, a, a decades now have responded to massive consumer trends, to massive changes, thanks to technology and consumer preferences by litigation, by legislation, by doing things that are anything but innovative and entrepreneurial. And it's, frankly, it's lazy. Uh, it's also a crappy case study. Like, can you imagine the Harvard Business School case study of the entertainment industry for the last 60 years? It's like, hey, consumers are really into this new technology. Try to shut it down. Like, that's it. That's the, that, is the, that is the shortest, lamest Harvard Business School case study ever. Um, there are going to be people, and there continue to be people, like my dad, like 
uh, Reed Hastings at Netflix, like Gabe Newell at Valve, who are in so many different sectors that are being radically transformed by the internet, but who are adapting their business, who are going to do very well in the years to come. While everyone else is putting their head in the sand, they will do well because that's the name of the game. That's that's why that's why we love the free market. It's because it pushes us to be more creative, to be more innovative, and be more resourceful, and rewards uh, the businesses who do that, who who innovate instead of legislate. You sound very very optimistic there, but you know you mm -hmm. talk about um, another someone we both like, Tim Wu, and his uh, book, mm -hmm. The Master Switch, and you know the history yeah. of lots of technologies that have been successfully litigated or you know put back into the box, radio and television. And so my my question is, do you do you, do you, could you carry that optimism to unequivocally say that the battle's over, that we've won, that, that the, you know, as your title suggests, that it, the Internet has won and the future is without their permission? I, I cannot get complacent. None of us, none of us should get complacent. So we, we have to keep reading those emails that we get every day that, oh, they're trying to take over. I want to start ignoring those. It's tough. No, I know, man. And it's easy. It is easy to get jaded by them. It's easy to get burned out by them. But it is, it is not over. Uh, and we knew that even after Silver Pippa's, you know, we were so reluctant to really, really declare a, a total victory because we knew this was going to be multi-headed and that parts of it are going to spring back up and other pieces of legislation. And so now we've got TPP. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think when it will end, I think the end goal we should be striving for is a period of time that I hope is in the not too distant future. When the people who write these laws, when the people in office, our politicians are either, are either aware enough that they themselves understand this technology or are scared enough that they know how important this is to all of us, that they won't dare touch it. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's going to be a combination of those. We, we certainly cannot get enough nerds in office, but the next best thing is to make sure that the people who are there, even if they don't have any clue, and it's funny, it's, it, always, it always shocks me when I see just how proud, how like sort of pridefully ignorant <laughs> these politicians can be when it comes to technology. You would never hear someone being so, so just kind of dismissive of like, oh, uh, of so many other industries and things. But there's something about technology. I don't know if it's because it's so, I mean, it, it, perhaps because it's so foreign, because it, it is so intimidating and threatening uh, to traditional power structures. I'm not sure. But, uh, you, you know, the best example I can give of this uh, actually came from the House Judiciary Committee meeting about SOPA when uh, a representative, I think Watt, uh, was saying, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he's basically like, listen, I'm not a technology guy. I don't really understand what this is, this bill is about, but but we need to pass it anyway. Uh, and, and you see that and you just think like, wow, I it, it is... It is so disheartening <laughs> to see someone so so pridefully dismissive, and uh, you know we can change that because he can be content being that dismissive because he doesn't feel any pressure from us, and and we're ultimately 
their bosses. And, and I, that's, you know, I, and I wanted to end this book with a really positive note because I'm a really positive guy, uh, that also gives people something, gives people a kind of blueprint for what they can do to make sure this amazing thing, the internet does not go away and that we don't screw it up because historically, as Tim has brilliantly laid out in a master switch, there have been plenty of, you know, quote unquote, democratic revolutionary communication platforms, radio, film, television, et cetera, that were just as co-opted and just as broken um, by either large, it, was, it came down to either uh, some, some combination of incompetent and large business and incompetent and large government, which turned all of those things that were heralded in the same way the internet is, uh, turned them all into what they are today, which is anything but what we hoped they would become. Uh, but what we have going for us is this one, this one is something special. This one really is a truly two-way global platform for sharing ideas as well as learning new ones. And, uh, you know, it's the world's biggest stage and library in one. And it's, it's such an amazing thing that we still haven't seen the full extent of. And I just want to make sure this is why I'm taking a bus to 150 stops, right? I want to make sure all 75 of those universities are filled with these ideas of people, especially my fellow millennials, seeing this as an opportunity, seeing it as the opportunity that it is to not only be entrepreneurial, but to be better citizens and, and start getting, I hope, a government that better represents us. So let's Alexis Ohanian author of Without Their Permission. And one of those 150 stops that he just talked about uh, is our Radio Vision Festival, which is taking place here in New York City at the Scholastic Theater in Soho on October 19th. I think he thinks he's only... We're a university, though, Andrea Salenzi. Yeah, he, I, well, we will be bringing the millennials, though. <laughs> he wants to speak to his fellow millennials. <laughs> Yeah, are, are you officially a millennial? I took the quiz and I scored lower than you, so I'm not. I'm not sure. You're not sure. Well, I think age-wise, you fit in there. That's true, but, but I I lack the tattoos and the million dollars, mm-hmm. the stock options, the trust funds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Alexis uh, is a really fun uh, person to talk with, and I look forward to him uh, being on stage at Radio Vision. But I, we invited him. Because I think that's, you know, taking it to its logical conclusion, having the conversations about podcasts, having the conversations about these new types of radio programs. That's it. It's what what makes it all possible is the magic of the Internet. I love that he calls it the library and stage all rolled into one. I like that. I've been thinking about that. Huh. You know, it's not just a depository. It's a stage. It's still showbiz. You got to figure out some way to stick the tongue out, right? You know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try. But uh, Andrea Salenzi, who's, you know, uh, has been helping out with the show, doing the fill-ins this summer when I had my nervous breakdown. And uh, she's going to be moderating one of the discussions at uh, Radio Vision. And I thought we'd talk about it a bit because this is one of the ones I'm most excited about. Yeah, I'll be speaking with uh, Jonathan Goldstein. He has a radio show up on the CBC called Wiretap. 
um, Jonathan Ronson. You've heard him on This American Life. He has a show called On on the BBC. And Starly Kine, um, all about the craft of the radio essay. But radio essay makes it sound so boring. I think what <laughs> I, I think we got to stop saying the word radio essay because radio essay sounds like you know bearded people would be doing you know <laughs> in their nice Park Slope apartment. But it's know. that like first person craft of telling radio from your own perspective. I mean, you could be on this panel, Ben. Yeah, I just I just don't like the word essay. I know. What would you call it? narrative? It's narrative. No, no, is no, no, scary. no, no, no. I'm I'm just I'm just one person. Maybe if we took a vote, you know, I would be outvoted. I would be voted off the island of the essay complainants. They would put me in my boat and say, fine, go hate essay out on the water, but we're going to use the word essay here on our island because it makes sense. No, no, I'm, I'm with you. But you came up with a great title for this session. Sure. I was thinking about George Orwell and the, the theater of the mind was what, what they always called it. And I was thinking Wait, that whoa, whoa, whoa. Wrong, wrong. It was not George Orwell. Orson Welles. I'm so <laughs> They are not the same person. I'm so sorry. You are voted fail. off, off the island. Fail. Oh, how am I going to do a panel then? <laughs> it would be great if George Orwell was oh, doing. Orson Welles. Yeah. Orson All right. Welles. So, okay. So I was thinking about Orson Welles and his theater of the mind. And what these writers really do is they create a theater of the eye. What's, on, what's being presented is their perspective, their capital letter I. Yeah. I love it, and I think that's a great. Uh, that is a great title. So we've got the title, we've got the guests, we've got the moderator. Uh, you think you're ready for this? I think this is going to be something that a lot of folks who are looking to start their own shows or looking on how to move this idea forward are going to be looking to the folks on stage for information and inspiration. You know, what? I'll give you a hint. If anyone, you don't have to answer the question. Where do you get? your ideas if someone asks that i will <laughs> escort them out of that i'm not gonna ask that um what i'm really curious about is like the role of um humor in their work of yeah. shame of self-depreciating humor um of their own humiliation i think we'll hear a lot about like where they stop and where their characters and their stories begin that sounds great you know on the humor I think that uh, another one of the panels that I'm so excited that we put together is our own Tom Sharpling doing the comedy podcasts with Julie Klausner and Jake Fogelnest, which is so great because, you know, uh, the best show was pod comedy podcast before these things were even hatched. So true. And actually on the WFMU Facebook page, everyone is wondering if Gary the Squirrel will be there. Uh, That's the most common question we get. I don't have a, a, a confirmation on that, but I do know that with so many of these comedy podcasts almost becoming like business cards for comedians or, or would-be comedians, I do feel that some feel that there's like a pollution of the pool. And I think what Tom is interesting is really getting at with Julie and Jake actual what, you know, the comedy mm-hmm. podcast can be and how it can be awesome. So I, it's going to be a really fun conversation. And this is all happening October 19th at the Scholastic Auditorium. There's we links hope on you our join us. homepage, WFMU.org, for, for getting your tickets. And then we have Lori Anderson wrapping up the day, and then Ken's going to talk with her. So I guess I'll do the one with Alexis after he's done. So, uh, But I already what, what talked to him. What are you going to ask him? I think after listening to the interview we just did, some of the questions I still have, I think, are about maybe pushing back on... You know, so so part of his story is, you know, really being out there on the front lines, fighting the SOPA PIPA thing and making sure that the Internet remains free. I think that that's an interesting story, but not as applicable. I, I, I'm just going to go with that. I think that we won 
And it's just like, now that we have the internet, like the title of his book is Without Their Permission. You know, let's just focus on that and, and getting people to understand just not only what they can do at the creative level with their projects and their shows, but on the, on the business side and just entrepreneurial thing. Yeah. So I think, I think that's, that's, what I'm, I'm, that's what I've taken away from our little chat. Um, but what else do we have going on on the day? Uh, looking at the schedule at radiovision.wfmu.org, you can see that, uh, man, we have another great conversation with uh, Elena Ragzavona, who will be speaking in the morning. Um, we have someone from SoundCloud, one of our sponsors, and we have someone from Songza, and we have someone from Duddy Arts on a whole conversation about uh, music blogs, discovery ser- services, and streaming. It's it, it, as like what these three uh, co- uh, companies, new ways of listening, have done to the idea of like a radio station. It's and human so versus good. robot radio. That's that's what I'm excited for. Yeah, and we have our own Liz Berg doing something with Planet Money. And uh, she's going to be looking at new funding models for radio and audio production. Sounds <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a very, very, very good time. So we hope you can join us. All this is taking place very, very soon. Um, I think we'll have a few more Radio Vision folks on the program next week. Uh, we still have to talk to Jonathan about his book. And um, did we go through over all the highlights that we wanted to? talk about or let me look at the schedule here oh um laurie anderson i did i just (laughs) talked about it that's gonna be an amazing that's our keynote speaker she's wrapping up the day she's got a whole multimedia presentation and you know who's we we decided would do a great q a with her who ken friedman oh that sounds fantastic yeah what does she want to talk about specifically i think she's going to take us through you know art leading media and technology before she even had all the tools that she wanted i mean the thing is, is there were so many, uh, you know, I had, I, I did a segment on the sound art show at the MoMA a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and that woman was talking about a show she put together in like 1980, mm-hmm. like, you know, and Laura Anderson was in that show. I mean, this is a long time ago about artists working with sound, you know, and technology, and it just seems that when you read about that moment, there wasn't a lot of access to all the tools. There was a, like a big laundry list of things you wish you would have access to. And all of that now is just in your crystal phablet, in your phablet, in your, the tablet in your <laughs> hand. So now that the tools have caught up with the medium, You still have people now? saying they still, there's people supposedly are still not, I mean, you would think if all we were waiting for was the technology. Once we had it, we would, you know, we'd have it all. Everyone would be still going at it. But you know what people are doing? They're looking at Facebook. They're looking at Twitter. <laughs> Ben, why aren't you on Facebook? You're missing All right. Uh, So, yeah, so I think that's some of the things she wants to talk about. And, uh, yeah, so that is the wrapping up the day. But we also have an amazing lunch on the rooftop that folks can come down to. But uh, hour's almost over, so we should wrap this up, Andrew Salenzi. All right. Well, I hope folks get tickets over at radiovision.wfmu.org to join us for this conversation about radio in the digital age. I'm... I'm, it was so fun last year, and it I'm was. excited for this year. And we had a happy hour afterwards. Man, and it was such a good crowd of actual, like, excited young people in, into making the next generation of radio. So come join us if you can. And on that note, stay tuned for Nardwork coming up next.
You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Lobster! to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. You just heard right there from Portland, Oregon, brand new from Youth Bitch. 
I'm in love with girls. Youth bitch on the Dirt Nap slash Johnny Cat record label. And speaking of bitches, today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show, an interview with from Miami, Florida, Trina the Baddest bitch. Trina, the baddest bitch on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. And right now, gonna play something by a band from Seattle, Washington, the Bottlenose Coffins, with a song called Christy Yamaguchi on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. My name is Leslie Ledbottom, and I'd like to um, thank everybody for like buying this awesome, super deluxe that is guaranteed, I hope, to go, you know, platinum record by Aunt Piet and Throw the Pea Girls. It's entitled... A little bit of respect. We yeah, respect. respect it's not a little bit of respect. It's respect all the way. Okay. All like, the time. I must get top billing. I'm, I'm guaranteed... Every time, one. we coming out the box so strong, so strong, we got to be so, so strong. I can't, I, I can't stand it. I'm taking, I'm taking no mess.
Give me my 